This episode brought in part by Serverless Guru and made possible by the ever-growing and passionate Serverless community. Whether you're just starting your serverless journey, halfway through migrating your entire legacy system, or are an AWS hero, Serverless Guru can help you migrate, build applications, and train your team on best practices. With a team of front-end, back-end, and full-stack cloud developers, Serverless Guru can get you where you want to be. Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today once again by the one and only Nader Davitt, who has recently transitioned from being a senior developer advocate at AWS to being a developer relations engineer at Edge and Node. Aside from job titles, you probably know Nader Davitt by the amount of public community content he's putting out on what feels like a daily basis. How are you doing today, Nader? I'm doing really good. I can't really complain at all. I just you know, I was talking to you how I was in Miami for the last two weeks, and that was my first uh, trip for work in the last two years, or I wouldn't say two years, maybe a year and a half. So it was really cool to kind of get out there and, and be able to meet people in real life and talk to them. And um, it's an exciting time right now for the you know United States, I would say. I know the rest of the world is still not quite there yet, but it seems like some light at the end of the tunnel. So um, cool stuff going on right now, I think. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And uh, I remember you saying that I saw on Twitter as well some of the images and and all that stuff. And then after after I saw your stuff about being in Miami for, uh, you know, events around blockchains, cryptocurrency, I saw even like Jack Dorsey, the the CEO of, or the founder of Twitter, was there, and like a whole bunch of other people too. Was that all like one giant event in Miami? Yeah, it was that? like a Crypto Week or something they called it. It wasn't really an official thing. It was just like there was a Bitcoin Miami conference going down there. Now I'm like not personally like that into Bitcoin itself, but um. But because of the event was happening, a bunch of people just went down there and they had all these different events that were surrounding the event. So like during the day, we would go to different lunches and, and um, different you know houses people would rent and hang out um, like a bunch of companies got together and went down there and like we're renting these like mansions. Uh, by pulling together, you know, like maybe 10, 15 people together and living there together. And they were throwing like little get togethers. It was pretty sweet. And there was, you know, events at night, like dinners and, and, and stuff like that. But a lot of the people that were there, like myself, didn't even go to the conference. We were just there for all of the people that were just going down there at the same time, you know. No, that's amazing. Um, I think even one of the questions that uh, I was going to ask was like, how does this compare to event other events that are in tech? Like, how does this blockchain crypto events and what you just mentioned right there with like renting out mansions and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I thought I saw a DJ on a boat on one of your images. So like, how does that compare with, with other events? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's a lot less engineering focused as far as the participants, but because like, you know, all of the events that I go to are developer events, whereas this event wasn't like a developer event. It was more just like an industry event. So I'm really looking forward to going to, I think there's ETH global and then there's uh, ETCC, and then there's a couple of other events that I understand are more like developer focused. And uh, at, that, at that point, I'll kind of get a better understanding. So this was kind of like my first crypto event, but it would almost be like going to WWDC or something, I would say, because it was like, you know, uh, it was like Bitcoin Miami. And therefore, it wasn't like a lot of developers there. So like a lot of the people that were going down there were just industry people. Now, now I would say I did bump into probably 30% of the people that were there that, that were developers, but there were also a lot of like founders and investors and, um, you know, those types of people. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, I think that's a good, good point to kind of segue into where we, where we were last time is that, you know, we talked about you being a, you're a senior developer advocate at AWS at the time. Uh, you've since made a transition, uh, I believe when I checked your LinkedIn, like five minutes before we started recording, it was, uh, three months ago. So, how has like what prompted that shift and yeah how is that whole how is this whole thing unfolded to to where you're where you're at now um so i joined aws the very beginning of 2018 and um when i when i joined we were just starting to launch amplify and you know i i was there for a little over 3 years so i think 3 years and 3 months or something like that and um you know we we kind of did a lot when i was there we we were brand new with amplify it was a couple of months old maybe when I started and then when I left we were ramping up on you know a few hundred thousand active monthly developers um, big growth as far as the number of team members we were outpacing the rest of AWS by an order of magnitude so things were going really well there and it was actually really fun and exciting and I 
I really, really feel strongly about, I would say, all of the technology that we were working with. Um, and I also kind of got familiar with other things like CDK became really interesting to me. But, um, you know, I, th- I think after being somewhere for a long time, you kind of start, I don't know, maybe thinking about ways to maybe stimulate your uh, your brain a little bit uh, more, or at least I do. And I wouldn't say that I was bored or anything like that. I just felt like maybe the excitement wasn't um, as much as the first couple of years that I was there. You know, after three or, or, or so years at a big company, you start getting more and more responsibilities. I became a manager, which which led to me like maybe having a little less external interaction. And I feel like with my role as a developer advocate, I've become such an individual contributor that, that I've kind of gotten a lot of, I would say, how do I put it? Maybe like my excitement and my fulfillment is often related to me being um, externally facing and creating stuff and talking to people. And when you're in a manager position, you kind of do maybe a little less of that. And also COVID, you know, COVID happened. I didn't travel for over a year and I really used to enjoy that. So I, I kind of like just wonder if it was like, a perfect storm of things happening. And then I kind of started um, keeping my eyes open for other opportunities that were out there. I was really thinking like DevRel is is for sure where I want to be. I was considering staying at AWS because I was on the track to become like a principal, which would have been pretty cool. You know, I would have been able to kind of have that like next level, level seven. I had a great team there and, and it was kind of, you know, something that I thought about as well. But I was also interviewing with a couple of companies, like over the course of that year, really just keeping my my eyes open as as someone that often is uh, just doing that. You know, I think it's it's healthy. I think for anyone to interview a few times a year just to you know see what's what's out there. You know, um, so I was interviewing at Coinbase. I was interviewing at Goldman Sachs. Both of those for like really senior level developer relations uh, roles that were like leading global teams, which all were super interesting to me. But it wasn't as interesting. It wasn't interesting enough for me to basically leave a team where I was already doing that and we were doing cool stuff already. So why would I kind of like felt like it was almost like a lateral move, you know, going from like that same role into a different company doing the same thing. So it was a little like less exciting to the point where I would actually want to leave and and do something else. And then kind of um, I started diving into some of the ideas that were rolling around in the Web3 space and the decentralized space. And I really started becoming really fascinated with a lot of the projects that were being built and a lot of the projects that were already being that had already been launched. And uh, one thing led to another, and I found um, one in particular company, which is the company that ended up creating the team that I'm on. It's called Edge and Node, like you mentioned. But the core technology that was kind of like created before Edge and Node is something called the Graph Protocol. That was something that was worked on for about four years by the founders that in, ended up, uh, you know, launching this this whole uh, network, this decentralized network, and then they decided to spin off this new company to do additional things within the space. And um, after looking into what they were doing and maybe their track record and kind of the vision that they had for the future, I was really, really just um, fascinated by it. And uh, I just one thing led to another, and I ended up uh, taking a role with them. And I've been here for like almost three months now, like you mentioned. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so cool to see like the transition and then understand the lateral move thing. And then it's, it's almost like a completely different world. Like I've, I've somewhat been following your, your journey through that and your posts on Twitter and then trying to like go down that rabbit hole myself. And I'm sure you, you saw me post probably like an, an, an enormous amount that you definitely don't need to reply to um, around like just trying to understand it myself around like web three and like what this means. And so I guess just to give like context, assuming that some of the people that are listening are also coming from a similar uh, background as myself, um, you know, let's, let's go like way back, like blockchain, D apps, like decentralized apps, DeFi, um, and then even what the graph is like, what, what are these things? And can, can you kind of give us like an overview of uh, just what all this stuff means? There's a lot to unpack here. And it literally took me probably a month or a month and a half of, of me researching stuff before I kind of really fundamentally understood everything and how everything works together and was comfortable enough to actually leave and, and actually go into this and kind of, you know, bet the current state of my career on it. So it's like, I really do believe in it and I'm really excited about it. 
and there is a lot, a lot to unpack. So um, I guess to start off where I personally got really interested in it was the graph. And that's kind of one of the core technologies that my team um, works with because we have a two-year contract to help and continue develop uh, development of all of the all the code that that runs this particular decentralized network. But the graph itself is just an example of one of the many decentralized networks that are being built in that quote unquote Web3 space. So I think like you mentioned, maybe if us diving into that one in particular would be helpful. So I would say when anyone wants to build an application on top of a blockchain, this is kind of a good place to start the discussion. Um, when you think about a traditional database like DynamoDB, or you think of a database like a SQL database, or even you think of something like Google, where there is all of this data out there, and um, how am I supposed to kind of know where I can find maybe um, a new pair of socks, or maybe I want to learn about an events platform, or I want to see, you know, I want to search for a local news website or something like that, or a local restaurant. So in the past, before Google was there, you know, way, way back, you might have needed to find a website that kind of like listed all these links or something, and then search engines came around, and Google works as a search engine. And the way that it does this is it indexes all of the data, it crawls all of the data that's out there on the web, and it's, it stores it in a database, and it makes it easy to read and query from a browser, which is the Google the search bar. Um, now, Google is a very you know complex technology under the hood, but it makes it really simple. It basically indexes data on the web and makes it available via search. Now, that's a good thing to keep in mind because it relates a lot to what we're doing at the graph. Um, when you're working with blockchain data, when you think about the way that a blockchain is fundamentally like fundamentally works under the hood, it's not like a regular database where uh, I would say when you when you think about a, uh, for instance DynamoDB, you have your data that's indexed, and there's different mechanisms for querying, and you have these uh, global secondary indexes and all these things, and it's kind of like built for querying, right? Uh, DynamoDB. And in fact, that's one of its main strengths. But when you look at something like Ethereum, it's essentially um, just like all blockchains. It's a block, a ledger of different blocks that have been written over time. So you go back to the very first block, that was the very first uh, set of transactions. And then another block is written and, and so on and so forth. And over time, you kind of build up this history of transactions that were written over time. Now, if I want to go and query some data from the blockchain, um, it's really hard for me to get anything other than an individual read. So I can go and I can read a single transaction and I can get some data out of that. But let's say I wanted to aggregate data from the very beginning until the end, or maybe I want to get an array of data from you know 17 or, or 20 transactions that happen. For me to query from that from a front-end application, it's actually going to be very complex. I'm going to end up having to write a lot of logic and then, you know, it might take anywhere between seconds to even minutes or hours actually to, to run a query like that. So what people in the past have done to get around this, so let's say you wanna build an application on top of Ethereum, and uh, an example might be something like Uniswap, which is a financial exchange, does uh, millions of dollars in, in, in transactions, um, or I would say it has actually millions of dollars of revenue per day in transactions. Let's say you wanna build an application on top of Ethereum. In the past, what you would do you would spin up like a server on AWS. Maybe you would spin up like Postgres database, an API gateway endpoint, whatever. And then you would go and you would you would read every single block from the blockchain and you would read the data out of it. And then you would store that in your database and then you would expose an API on top of it. You might have different routes. You would have to kind of write all of this code yourself. Now, this was, um, first of all, very time consuming and very resource intensive. And if someone wants to kind of just come up with an idea and play around with it, you can imagine just like in a serverless infrastructure where you kind of just want to spin up an API and test it out, you couldn't really do this in the blockchain world. You would end up having to spend a lot of time building out all of this different, um, these different APIs and stuff, running infrastructure, and it was very, very time consuming and resource intensive. Um, in addition to that, it was also breaking like the fundamental idea. You mentioned Web3. Um, a lot of the ideas around Web3 are people building applications in a decentralized manner. So if you kind of went into AWS and stored all the data from the blockchain in a server, you're kind of like missing the point of building a decentralized app because that, at that point it isn't decentralized. So what the graph basically does is it enables a decentralized network of nodes to be run. And anyone that wants to deploy an API 
for indexing and, and exposing an API on top of blockchain data can do that and deploy it to this decentralized network. And the core technology behind how this all works is, I would say, two main things. One of them is the graph node, which is kind of just some software that you can download and run yourself. And then the other is the subgraph um, API, where you kind of define a, a YAML configuration similar to kind of like, I don't know, serverless framework or something where you kind of have like a few different key value pairs. And in that YAML, you can define the data that you want to be indexed and you deploy your subgraph to one of these nodes and you get an API endpoint and then you can start querying that data. And it literally takes, instead of like hours or days or even longer to kind of deploy one of these APIs, you can now deploy an API anywhere between like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, just kind of depending on how much time it takes you to write a little bit of uh, whatever custom code you have. So you're able to basically build out these really scalable, decentralized APIs on top of blockchain data in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, I know this is really cool. So let me try to see if I if I understand. So Edge Node creates uh, servers which allow you to then index blockchain data, which would be super time consuming. It, it, it'd be like what you're saying, the serverless infrastructure where it's like, you have to spin up the EC2 instance or even like a data center server and then install stuff on it, have the operations aspects of it and all those things. And then what you're saying is um, this, the graph is a, a layer on top of it's it. It's like a really high level abstraction that allows you to do that. Yeah. Without having to kind of deploy your own infrastructure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. No, that's, that's awesome. And so you brought up Uniswap as well. And I've, and I've, I've, I've bought some crypto uh, as well. I think the whole thing is super fascinating. Um, and I've used Uniswap. Um, I don't know if I, I know that I was able to swap a token for another token. Do you, how does, how does Uniswap fit into uh, all the stuff that we're talking about with like indexing and. Yeah. And well, Uniswap is, I guess one of, um, like if you look at the crypto ecosystem, the Ethereum ecosystem, I don't know the exact number, but something like 80 to 90% of, of dApps in production that are like out there are using the graph as their as their backend. So Uniswap is just one of those companies. So uh, when you look at the data on the Uniswap website, and if you look at the data in their app, they're using the graph to query the data from Ethereum. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of yeah. like one of just the many apps that are that's using the graph. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So this, so I think that covered. Uh, yeah. So we covered. Oh, so Web three. It's Web. I had some some more like dicey questions around like web two to web three and what that means. Um, because it feels like uh, everything with web two was like Twitter, for instance, or like Instagram is it's, or even Google uh, to some degree, it's like you, you have users that put their data onto the platform and expose that data to the company. And then they didn't take that data. They sell it to advertisers to then make money and revenue off of it. Um, and some people have made the, Thing that you know you are the product or something you know when you're in that when that in that case it's free to you but they're also using your data selling it all that stuff with web3 does that go away is it a whole different revenue model and how do companies that currently exist off of that model of of selling that data to advertisers do they transition are they beat out of the market by newcomers like what are your thoughts on on all that. Yeah, I mean, I think like you're going to see a transition over the next 10 to 20 years. And, and, I, and when I say 10 to 20 years, like, I mean, over the long term, and, and, and it's starting to happen now, but it's not going to be something that I think happens overnight. I think that you're going to see a coexistence between applications that are built the way that we're building them today. But you're also going to actually see an explosion maybe of these of these Web3 applications that out of, they, they literally make it a point, they go out of their way to not do any of this stuff that that we're kind of used to around advertising and, and data harvesting. Yeah, I think like um, when, when people talk about Web3 and Web2, they're like, oh, is like Facebook and Twitter going to go away? No, it's definitely not. Those, those apps will step, definitely be around. But what you're going to see is people building like Web3 versions of these, in my opinion. And they're already doing that. I mean, like you're literally already seeing some of this stuff happen. And people are going to basically at that point have a choice. Like, do I want to you know, um, use this type of application or that type of application. And I think over time, the 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 applications that are building in a decentralized manner are, are going to win in the in the very long term. But I don't know like what that time range looks like. It could be five years. It could be ten years. It could be longer. Um, but but there are applications of Web three that are already 
you know, very, very um, popular today. Some of the ones like I would, like I mentioned, there's a Uniswap as far as like high traffic DeFi stuff. There's Foundation, there's Zora. There's a lot of gaming stuff. There's a lot of like NFT stuff. There's governance stuff that's out there. But um, at the end of the day, like the core idea around how you monetize your app is going to change. So today, if you build an application and you want to kind of uh, monetize it, if you are in the social media space or if you're in kind of like the space around uh, serving videos or any type of content, for the most part, every single one of these applications is funded by advertising of some sort. So you think about LinkedIn, you think about YouTube, you think about Instagram, all of these things started off as really nice user experiences. And then once they gained enough users to kind of start pushing ads and monetizing those users, they start introducing more and more intrusive and degrading user experiences by adding all of these uh, these these ads. And the and the way that they, you know, try to improve the amount of money that they can make by serving ads is by getting the most pristine data that they can from their users and serving the most targeted ads and therefore in increasing conversion rates. And what you end up happening is like, you know, you're, you're, you're on the uh, website like YouTube and every other 30 seconds you're seeing ads, um, a data breach happens. You, you find out that they've kind of like have all of your, your phone number and email address and it's been like leaked somewhere and you have to go, you know, do all this stuff to kind of secure your identity. And then someone goes and opens a credit card and like all these things happen because of people storing your data and then not, um, you know, not being able to, to store it in a secure fashion. So the business model of like a typical startup might be, okay, I have an idea. I'm going to get a million dollars in funding and we're going to build out like a prototype and then, oh, this looks good. Okay. I'm going to get another 50 million, but that $50 million uh, investment, th those investors want like a $5 billion return on investment. So how are you going to kind of get there? Well, for the most part, you know, people are doing, doing this, uh, this, data harvesting slash advertising route. Of course, there are exceptions. So if you're building like a platform as a service or you're doing something developer focused, a lot of times it's not dependent on on um, ads, which is great. But there are other models. And I think like Web3 and, and crypto and tokenization come into the discussion around how this might actually work because people are always like, well, how are you going to build and pay for a platform if no one's paying money to use it because you obviously probably don't want to charge people $10 a month to use something like Twitter. Um, but they are, you know, actually introducing some stuff actually on Twitter, but it's optional. Um, I think the whole idea around how this is going to be done is kind of a disrupt, a disruptive way of how we currently are doing I IPOs. So when you think about an IPO, um, how the life cycle typically works is someone comes up with an idea, they build it out, and over about five or 10 years, it becomes successful. And then they open up for investors and they allow shareholders to come in. And then you see sometimes wild, wild valuations. So you might see a company that is only, that's losing money, but they're valued at $10 billion. Why is that the case? Well, that that's because people think that that application is like, you know, going to be profitable one day, maybe, or they think they're going to gain more users. And that's very important to maybe keep in mind that that those valuations are there. And th that type of money is being dumped into some of these unprofitable companies. Because the way that a lot of companies are now actually starting to be formed using uh, tokens and using crypto is a similar fashion, but it's kind of like backwards, I would say. So let's say that I have a good track record as a developer. I have worked at Google for five or 10 years. I've created a bunch of open source and people trust me. And um, I've built teams and I have this really, really great idea to kind of build out an, an application. I create a white paper. I lay out like a two-year plan on how we're going to build this. And I say any developer in the entire world that wants to help me build this can can take on a feature or be part of the team. And instead of me paying you in money, we're gonna create a token. And this token is going to you know, be given to you to maybe do like this thing or that thing. And you know, I'll give you like a thousand of these. And then down the road, whenever uh, the application is built, we then release the tokens for sale for the public and everyone that in, in believes in this idea can buy them. And the people that have received these tokens can sell them and therefore be compensated. And this model is literally happening um, already all the, uh, a lot, like it's been happening the last couple of years. I'm kind of just really in the last three months, 
understanding uh, how all of this stuff has been been working in the past because you know I'm still fairly new to this to this um, ecosystem. But for instance, the graph that uh, protocol is is actually an example of that. Anyone that wanted to help build out this network, um, let's say a year ago. Um, could have done that. So now we're seeing that there's these developers and these participants that are in countries like South America and in Asia and, and places like this, where maybe the average uh, salary there for developer is 10 or 20% of what it would be in the United States. They've become um, very, very wealthy because they've contributed value to, to something that then provided value as a platform. And um, it's kind of a really interesting way of, of going about doing things. So, I mean, that's kind of like a general overview. I think I think to understand this a little bit deeper, I would suggest there's this book called The Token Economy. Check it out. And also check out, um, you know, uh, companies that are already doing stuff like this. So uh, there's there's one really interesting company called, when I say company, like I'm using that, that term uh, loosely because a lot of these are actually not really companies. They're kind of like uh, decentralized organizations. But one of them is Yearn Finance, which is super interesting because um, it's completely run in a decentralized manner, and anyone that you know um, wants to participate can participate, and people that want to kind of write code can write code and get compensated for it without being an like actual employee. Yeah, I was going to ask. It sounded like there might be some mercenary developers going around, you know, working on different projects, getting compensated for that time, and then you know, and it's just to reiterate those steps. It's very interesting because I've had the. It's been it's been rattling around my brain since I started trying to you know put together like how does the cryptocurrency aspect fit back into the blockchain side of it, um, and that makes perfect sense. The, so just to reiterate those steps, it was white paper roadmap, then you can pay developers in the token, and then at some point you open that up for sale. Developers can then sell them, uh, then get compensated for that, and it's a and I think yeah, it's like an opposite of like a an IPO where it's like you said, it's like five, 10 years down the road, that stuff's being set up. And so how does this affect when people have ideas now and in the future? Does, is this more accessible for people to start companies and actually build new things? Is this going to, is this going to just like rocket ship innovation? Uh, what are you I mean, about? I think it is. I mean, you're starting to see traditional VC really, really get into this. So if you look at like Anderson Horowitz or some of those more traditional VCs, their percentage of portfolios being crypto companies are actually skyrocketing. And uh, when I was in Miami, I just was uh, pretty pretty surprised at the number of companies that were down there that were funded originally by traditional VCs. And being, being someone that's really plugged into the um, serverless and front end and Jamstack ecosystem, I'm seeing a lot of the companies that were investing and in, a lot of those companies starting to invest in some of these, these companies as well, which is pretty interesting. I think it's a very, very it's just, uh, it makes a lot of sense as far as like a business use case because they see the return on their investment um, a lot quick, uh, a lot quicker. And there's a lot less friction for, for getting people on board and building stuff. And there's a lot more excitement, I think, with the developers that are participating here. So um, I would say like the level of qu the quality of developer that I've worked with since I've been here the last few months is, is just by far higher than anything I've ever seen in the past. And I don't know if it just attracts like the type of people that are trying to uh, to take on some of these really tough problems. But um, I'm just kind of blown away at, at seeing like on my team, for example, people are coming from Google and Airbnb and um, people that have like really, really deep technical expertise, researchers and stuff that have um, going to places like Stanford and all these really prestigious colleges and stuff all coming together on a single team. And it's, and it's not very uncommon to kind of see similar teams that are out there. Yeah, that, that sounds like the, the, because the barrier of entry is much higher right now because of how new it is that it's like, uh, I heard someone use that analogy with YouTube a long time ago that it was hard to make YouTube videos and it was difficult like 13, 10, 10 plus years ago. But if you were doing it, then the, the payoff for doing that was much higher. Um, I guess like to, to think about for someone that's coming from uh, maybe like a similar like Amplify and AWS and cloud development, all that stuff, what, how, how much of that stuff transfers over to starting to like do Ethereum development or blockchain development? And are there skills that translate really well or is it like a completely new paradigm in um, building applications? No, I think it translates really well. And I don't think it's kind of like a one or the other type of thing. I think you can do both. And I think that for uh, 
very, very what something that really translates over well for developers that are building on serverless uh, services and infrastructure that might be interested in kind of the stuff that we're doing and that other people are doing is that a lot of the ideas that are happening with the decentralized web infrastructure are very close to the things that are happening in the serverless web infrastructure areas. So as a front-end developer myself, uh, one of the really interesting things about, um, for instance, the graph is that I can basically go in and there is a marketplace uh, for APIs that is out there. So I can browse thousands of APIs that people have built and deployed on top of uh, Ethereum. And I can actually just use one of these subgraphs, test it out for free, build out a front end. And all I really need to know is GraphQL. I don't need to know anything about blockchain. I don't need to know anything about Ethereum. All I need to know is how to use GraphQL. And I can basically use this managed, quote unquote, managed service. And um, when I learned about that, I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. But what, what about compute? What about storage? What about authentication? All this other stuff. Well, it turns out there's actually people either build, building this uh, stuff or it's already been built. So you can actually leverage all of these different things in a decentralized manner. So essentially the way I look at them is that they are serverless. And I think that's why we're on this podcast is because that's one of the things that I really, that really excited me about this area because I'm, I'm very, very much, you know, bought into this whole idea of serverless. And of course, like in, in reality, I don't think we're even going to be using the word serverless because I think everything is going to be serverless. It's just, it's just going to be like software development, right? And that's kind of like what I kind of am seeing. This this is kind of like a new paradigm of serverless almost. People building out uh, these decentralized network of services that allow me to get file storage, compute, identity, uh, APIs. And now I can just spend my time building out a really cool front end. And I don't have to worry about um, dealing with all of this infrastructure. Um, I think the main difference for um, the some of the stuff that we've talked about is like the area that a lot of the apps that people are building in the web and, and, and the decentralized space are kind of like moving towards this idea of Web3. But in reality, you can kind of pretty much do anything that you'd like. Yeah, no, this is, um, yeah. So it sounds like the thing that keeps coming back into my mind each time that it, uh, you kind of talk about this is like, uh, yeah, fully managed components, layers. Like it, it sounds like, you know, the idea that I can search all the APIs that have been built on top of, you know, Ethereum and then, or, or blockchain or whatever. Um, sorry, my knowledge of it, but like, um, if, if I can search through that and I can use one of them and I just need to know GraphQL and then I can build entire robust applications on top of that without having to recreate all of the, uh, all the knowledge required to build the, the, the core thing of it, then I'm almost just like connecting cables together and then being able to build out these crazy platforms, um, as an individual without having to have, you know, teams of tens of, you know, hundreds of, of software developers do that. And that's, I think that that's really radical. And I think I can see where you're saying that in almost these two different spaces, similar things are being built up um, because of the fully managed aspect of it. So that's, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and the really interesting part is that any, any data that's, that's made, that's built using blockchain is public data and it can be uh, queried therefore by something like the graph and made accessible via all these cool APIs. So people are putting together these, uh, all, all you have to do is kind of like understand how to build a subgraph and you can then create these really cool APIs combining different things and build different views on top of them. You can build web apps, mobile apps. Um, I think some of the most cool visual things that people are building are NFT apps. Um, where they're kind of like, you know, using existing um, data sources, of course, and, and opening up um, nice views on top of different NFT platforms. And um, some of the most like useful, I would say, projects that are actually being used as far as um, using some existing, you know, um, data source or the, the financial applications. So people are building interesting stuff on top of on top of those as well. But I think like, what you're going to see. So right now it is very prohibitive to write transactions to something like Ethereum uh, because of the cost. But I think one of the really exciting things that it's happening like right now, and really one of the reasons I felt really comfortable coming in at this time of the game is that there are a lot of solutions that are going to be, that are currently being implemented, but I think that they're going to be fully implemented and, um, I would say mature enough to use by the end of this year that are going to be lowering the transaction costs to less than a penny for the Ethereum transactions, which will kind of open up a new 
paradigm of applications that can be built. Because right now, most of the applications that are built as far as writing data to the blockchain or Ethereum are typically high value because if it costs you $5 to write a transaction, that's why you're seeing things like NFTs and financial transactions. But when it goes down to a penny, that's going to open up a new category of applications that can be built. And then um, there is also decentralized um web infrastructure for databases that's that's already there like orbit db and thread db but i don't think it's like production ready i don't want to say that because maybe i'm i'm just uh not i'm naive enough to not really understand how it works good enough but we have researchers on edge you know that actually work full-time researching web3 stuff and to the best of my knowledge like they are there but they're maybe not quite mature enough i think so like this year we're going to see like really inexpensive write operations to ethereum and then maybe next year you're going to see like a DynamoDB alternative or something like that that's decentralized that will allow you to basically have traditional data uh, storage and, and retrieval that isn't blockchain data. And I think at that point it will be uh, you'll be able to build almost any type of application that you would in a traditional like Web two space. Okay. Yeah. I, there's something interesting, and I'm I'm wondering if it's related. And I'll I'll, I'll tell a story of like I I think a while back I was traveling. I was traveling from Texas to Florida, and then I think it was maybe a month ago or three weeks ago, and there was some like almost like some meltdown thing that happened with like Ethereum and Bitcoin and like a whole bunch of other cryptocurrencies, and the gas fees on like Ethereum shot through the roof. And I think a transaction, I was just testing it because I, I was like, okay, the price of these cryptos that I like or whatever fell like really sharply. So let me try to take Ethereum and then turn it into something else so I, so I can buy that token. Um, and the gas fee was like, some crazy, it was like $550 transaction fee or something because of, of how right. crazy it was. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Is it, is this? A yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like about? no one okay. wants to, and, and like the volatility of it and also like traditional um, people that aren't already familiar with crypto, that's going to be very, a very negative experience and it's going to be off-putting. So yeah, once, once some of these um, improvement enhancements, so a couple of the enhancements that are that are already happening. Like there's two, there's a couple of categories. One of them is layer twos. So there's three layer twos that are going into production essentially like as we speak um, in the next uh, couple of weeks and then maybe in the next couple of months, the rest of them. And these are basically layers that are on top of Ethereum that allow you to basically use this as the transactional um, layer. And then it will batch transactions and then write those together. So let's say a thousand transactions uh, will be written at, at one time and then you, you're basically using this top layer. And what that basically will do is make the transaction costs go way down. And then also Ethereum itself is um, going through two major changes, like two merges that are going to basically increase efficiency. And um, also I would say, I, I don't know all the details around both of them, but I know that one of them is for for reducing the cost of the transactions, and one of them is like increasing the number of of um, I would say nodes or something like that. But but yeah, there's but there's basically a lot of uh, of, of updates that are happening that are kind of going to improve all that stuff this year. So I think like what you're going to see is maybe by the end of the year, a lot of this stuff not only fleshed out but a little more polished, and therefore opening up open the doors to a lot of maybe more interesting applications. And then maybe a year from now, we'll be able to kind of have a DAP that's that's so widely known that maybe like, you know, the average person in the world has tried it out. I think that's kind of the goal. Like, what is that killer application that um, is going to open the doors for traditional uh, people that are on the web? Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Um, and I, I know that the, the terminology is similar to what I, I believe is level two with like stock trading and stuff, too. Um, I'm not sure if it's directly the same, but I do like the the analogy that you just gave of like, you have like the layer one, which is just like the, the core base thing. And then you can add layers on top of it that have more functionality and maybe better caching and maybe, you know, things like that transaction speed and lower cost. Um, and that the fact yeah, that I mean, that you, could, you think about computing on. in general, it's all about abstraction on abstraction. So I think like early on, you know, you had like these low level programming languages and then people built better abstractions and um, software became better and, and faster. I think that's kind of where you're at in the blockchain space. Like the very the very basic level is these blockchains, but you're going to start seeing these abstractions built on top of it that allow more robust applications to be built. Early days for sure, but um, but you kind of kind of see that that evolution and, and kind of where it's headed and stuff. No, that's that's amazing. And to circle back to serverless cloud development, just 
the, uh, you know, cause most of the stuff that I've done, and I, I know that I don't, I'm not speaking for everyone that does serverless development. A lot of the stuff that I do is like, or, or serverless guru does is related to web applications and mobile application backends and all the resources that are like needed, like authentication, uh, APIs, all that stuff. So when it comes to this space and then thinking from a perspective of people that work in the space, uh, doing web application backends and mobile application backends and all that stuff, would you, would you recommend them to build a project on top of this stuff or even, or would you, would you recommend that they would work at somewhere like edge and node, um, potentially if they're leveraging AWS, I don't know if they are, but if they're leveraging some comp, some company like, uh, AWS and using the same set of tools, um, do you, do you know what I'm getting at? Is like, where would you recommend people, uh, look at? Like get started if they're if they're a developer and they want to start building stuff. Yeah, I think it's kind of like um, I think to understand what you can build, you have to kind of understand the space a little bit. So I would probably read up a couple of blog posts. I've tried to write some stuff to kind of get people interested. One of them is what is Web three, and the other is how to get into crypto as a developer. Um, I think reading those and uh, and I provide a bunch of links. So if you go to the Ethereum uh, docs, you'll see a list of of some of the more popular DApps. So just looking at DApps or DApps stands for decentralized apps, looking at the uh, decentralized apps that other people have already built might give you a good idea of what you can build. And I would uh, I would just kind of use it like as I would use this, these tools and these ideas as kind of like a Swiss army knife adding to all of the skills you already have. So in your in your Swiss army knife, you have serverless, you have React, you have all of the uh, all of the other things that you know in your in your career, right? This is kind of just adding something to it. I don't think it's kind of like a replacement or an end all be all, but I do see that there's a lot of like low hanging fruit and opportunity here to kind of build out some things that are really bleeding edge, cutting edge, some new ideas. You know, there's a lot of innovation here, but I but I also I'm not I don't think it's kind of like oh I'm going to become a blockchain developer. I'm going to build everything with the blockchain uh, technologies. Uh, no, absolutely not. It's more of like a, oh, this is a brand new paradigm. There's a bunch of new stuff that we can do. There's a lot of people innovating, creating really cool ideas and stuff. But that doesn't mean I still don't need to also understand, you know, DynamoDB and, and AppSync and, and Amplify and all these other different things. It's kind of like, okay, now I understand all these tools. Uh, someone comes to me with an idea. I'm, oh, yeah, we can do that with this. Someone else comes, or I come up with my own idea, and I can I can actually build it because I understand all the fundamental pieces that are kind of like out there. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. I would say. Yeah, when it comes to like, and I'm just trying to drill down further because it's like um, I think like infrastructure as code. I think like cloud formation. When it comes to uh, comes to this, are you still? And I like the last part where it sounded like you're still using React. You're still using potentially like AWS. Maybe are you still using something like cloud formation? Or is it some other infrastructure's code thing that's like related specifically just to blockchain and like how that gets deployed or like what are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, yeah, I, got, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean the the stack your 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 skill set is actually very transferable into this space. So I had never written a single line of Solidity. I had never written any like code that interacted with a blockchain until three months ago. And I was able to get up and running in about a month and actually able to kind of build out a local development environment, write some code, deploy, deploy a contract to Ethereum, uh, interact with it from a client front end, and then write a blog post about it that has been read like 130,000 times as a completely new person. And I think that the only reason that I was able to do that, to do that is because I was able to take a lot of the knowledge that I had from serverless and apply it here. So some of the stuff that's transferable well, just writing front-end code, all that stuff is very transferable. You're going to be literally writing the same type of code you've been writing, um, just like how you might use something like a GraphQL client. You're going to have an Ethereum client, or you can use GraphQL client to interact with the graph. All that stuff is pretty much the same. Um, with the graph in particular, you're going to be using uh, writing YAML code as well as TypeScript. So if you've ever written CloudFormation, you can kind of jump into a subgraph and understand what's going on there. I've seen a lot of similarities in some of these other decentralized protocols as far as like interacting with them. Um, you're still writing, you know, API calls to, to servers. You're still doing all that stuff. Yeah, so a lot of it's transferable. I would say the number one, well, I'd say the two main things that are very, very like new that you, that you have to grok are one of them is how identity works. So we're used to basically using Google OAuth or something where we kind of give the application all of our personal information, our phone number, our email address, our name, and God knows what else they can get from that. And then, you know, all of our 
things that we're doing online are now tied to us. And then the data breach happens and crazy stuff happens, right? Um, I think the difference between what's happening in Web3 is that uh, we have the idea of really more of an anonymous identity or, or a, pseudonymous, a pseudonymous identity, where instead of associating your personal information with your identity, you just have a wallet address, which is essentially like a hash. And that address is completely anonymous. And therefore, there you can use, you know, you can tie whatever information you want to to that. So if you want to be, um, if you don't want to be anonymous, you don't have to be, but you can be. And you can basically use the same address across multiple apps. And then what's interesting is that since all of these transactions are written to the blockchain and are public, you can build out reputation across multiple uh, different applications. So let's say someone does come up with an idea to deploy a, a new a, a new app and they want developers to contribute, you've already kind of contributed to a few apps in the past. You have that reputation built up on chain. Okay, this person has like done this work and therefore you might be more likely to kind of get um, get a role there. Or let's say there's an events platform and you're using your wallet address to authenticate. You can kind of go to multiple events and then maybe have a profile that shows all the events that you've been to. And, um, and then that can also transfer to anyone else that wants to use it. So it's kind of like, this shared store of, of data that can really be uh, used and uh, queried from anyone that wants to index it. So that's identity. And um, I forgot the other thing. Oh yeah, I was gonna say Solidity. So Solidity is like a brand new, it's almost like a backend language you could think of. And uh, it's different because you're dealing with money a lot of times within these transactions. So that was kind of brand new to me. And uh, the way that you kind of like um, understand how the values are are managed within a Solidity smart contract. So Solidity and then identity, those those two are the main differences, I would say. And then everything else will probably make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's amazing. And that was actually, I think the the last question I had um, was was basically that, which was uh, if you're like trying to get started in this, where do you go? And I think you just answered that perfectly. So um, yeah, are there any things that you know? Um, open dialogue is there, are there any things that you want to shout out any things that you want to like bring up to the audience uh, before we get ready to close out i would say um i saw that michael leendo joined the amplify team a couple weeks ago so shout out to him that's pretty cool i've been wanting to work with him and unfortunately we didn't get to work with each other when i was still at aws but um yeah i mean a couple of things that are interesting to me in the in, the, in this space i'm i'm I saw the Amplify released SSR support for their hosting service. That's pretty cool. I'm really bullish on CDK. I'm starting to play around and, and really like Superbase, which is kind of like a similar framework to Firebase or Amplify, but it uh, has some differences that I kind of am enjoying. One of them is that the querying capabilities are really, really robust. So like I used to run into some issues um, with Firebase or even Amplify when I would need to have some really um, complex querying going on. And uh, with, with DynamoDB, you kind of have to write GSIs and understand how um, the, the primary key and the sort key and all this stuff works. And it sometimes became a little complicated. Um, I'm, I'm liking the way Superbase deals with that. And also they have like 10 different authentication providers. I really wish Cognito would add GitHub or Twitter, but they haven't. In fact, when I worked at AWS, I used to ping them all the time. They did not really give a shit about what I, any of the stuff that I said on there. Um, I like the fact that Superbase actually offers all of these different authentication providers. And if anyone from, from Cognito is listening, you literally have like tens of thousands of, of developers that want GitHub OAuth. So it'd be cool to add that as part of uh, user pools. Yeah, no, amazing. Yeah, M Michael Lindio was on, uh, Lindo was on the podcast right before you actually. So um, super oh, cool. good. To, <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting to hear his story and, and yeah, congrats to him for getting um, onto the team uh, there at AWS. Super cool. I'm going to totally check out the Superbase thing. I just Googled it uh, while you were talking and, and wrote some notes on it. But yeah, DynamoDB can get complex. Like GSIs, like I know that if you work in the space for a while, then it's less complex because we've been around it for so long. But I know that every time that, you know, personally or with serverless guru approach a client or, or a developer and try to talk through some of the DynamoDB concepts, there are like pretty jarring. So the idea that it's not like a, a requirement that it has to be that difficult to understand, like it could be easier. I think that that's really important. And so have you found that experience with, with Superbase? Is that like, is that like part yeah, of the Yeah, that's draw? definitely like, I would say that's one of the main, the main things that I think um, is going to make it, and it seems to be picking up some steam, is that um, 
the API for these different queries is, is actually super, it's just simple and it's built in. And uh, you don't really have to kind of like think about um, how to model your data. It's just, it's just, oh, I want this. I'm going to select this from that and I want to filter this and that's it. Like you get the, you get the actual SQL that's executed and it is SQL. So it's, it's not no SQL. That's, that's a trade-off. I don't know how it will perform at like a massive scale or anything like that. Um, but I, but I hear that, that there are some production apps that are using it that seem to be having success with it. But um, I think the querying capabilities to me are what's drawn me in because I just um, really like being able to kind of build out all these different types of views on top of my data without having to write any additional backend logic at all. Amazing. But I would say the biggest trade-off, it doesn't use GraphQL. I'm a big GraphQL fan, as everyone knows. But uh, but but you're using SQL, so, you know, it's kind of like, I, I'm, I hate to ever um, say SQL and GraphQL are similar, but they, they offer similar power. Um, so... <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, no, really cool. And if the Cognito uh, team is listening, yeah, definitely add Twitter and GitHub as uh, providers there. Um, yeah, so um, if that's if that's everything, uh, anything personally that you want to promote, any courses or other other stuff that you're, you're rolling out soon? No, I'm not really um, doing anything in particular to shout out. I mean, I'm doing a few more things on uh, Ethereum development. I'm doing a few things on uh, the Graph Protocol we have a launch that's happening. Um, I can't really talk about the details, but it's going to be pretty exciting. And um, I'm doing a couple of tutorials on Superbase, actually. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually going to be launching a full stack end-to-end course on um, Free Code Camp. Yeah, so Free Code Camp is one of the blogs I've been writing with. They usually have like you know pretty large-scale readership. So I'm doing an end-to-end guide on Superbase that's launching with uh, Free Code Camp today actually or I'm, I'm submitting it today i don't know when it's going to go out that's amazing yeah free code camp is huge so that's a really cool place to be part of um well i think that does it uh nader uh, thanks again for being a, a guest on the podcast on the talking circles podcast great to have you thank you so much for having having me it was cool to talk to you and um yeah it was it was cool being here All right. Well, to those listening, uh, this has been the Talking Serverless Podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, check us out on TalkingServerless.io or give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Any one of those is great. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. (music) 